the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Today on Cornerstone Connection with Pastor Gary Hamrick. Real love is calling, listen, truth opens up your eyes. Mercy is waiting for you with every sunrise. God is sovereign and man needs to be responsible. But as much as we are to be responsible for our salvation in terms of receiving, accepting, walking, living in obedience, there is the keeping hand of God involved in it. It is not solely up to us because the promise is that God will keep you strong unto the end. So God is the one who was also actively working in your faith to keep you strong, to keep you from falling. He does his work to preserve us as his children in this journey of faith. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through 1 Corinthians. In his first letter to the Corinthians, Paul gives encouragement and exhortations to the believers there. Today, Pastor Gary will explain Paul's teaching and challenge you to similar living. Paul urged believers take responsibility for their beliefs to live in obedience to Jesus' commandments, and to walk in faith daily. However, Paul encouraged them with the truth that there is a tension between our responsibility and God's sovereignty. God is a keeping God who holds your salvation secure while actively working to grow your faith and obedience. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 1 with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. He writes to the church of God in Corinth. Church in Greek is ecclesia, meaning the called out ones. That's what church really means. We're, we're called out to be different. To the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. So this is written also to us because he says to all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice that he writes to those sanctified. He says those who are called to be holy. Those are similar words in the original Greek. They have the same root word, hagios. To be sanctified is hagiazo. To be holy is hagios. In fact, the word holy also translates saints in some of your Bibles. So it is true that if someone knows Christ sitting next to you, they are a saint. By definition. Maybe not by the way they act sometimes, but by definition. And he says in verse 3, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord 
Jesus Christ. It's always that way, grace and peace in that order, in the greetings of Scripture, not peace and grace. You cannot have peace until you first know His grace. It is always in that order, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That was a typical greeting that covered both Greeks and Jews. Grace in Greek is charis, peace for the Jews, shalom. He says, I always thank God, verse 4, I always thank God for you because of His grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in Him you have been enriched in every way, in all your speaking and in all your knowledge. Because our testimony about Christ was confirmed in you. So he's commending them here in the beginning. And, you know, he says, listen, you're very eloquent in the way that you testify about the truth. You're very knowledgeable about the truth. I mean, after all, again, Paul invested 18 months out of his life with these people. So, of course, they should be a bit eloquent and a bit knowledgeable. Because, he says, our testimony about Christ was confirmed in you. He shared the gospel with them. Verse 7, he says, therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift... As you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He, verse 8, this is a great verse. He will keep you strong to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, underline that or highlight that in your electronic Bibles. He will keep you strong to the end. That's the work of God. You know, our God is a keeping God. Even the great priestly blessing of Numbers chapter 6, 24, it reads, The Lord bless you and keep you. And the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. And the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. The Lord bless you and keep you. God is a keeping God. Isaiah 26, 3 says that God will keep in perfect peace. Him whose mind is steadfast or stayed on God. In Psalm 121, 7 to 8, David said, The Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and your going both now and forevermore. In Jude 24, it says, To him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. God is a keeping God. And God, he says here, will keep you strong to the end. God will keep us in perfect peace. God will keep us from all harm. God will keep us from falling. That is the work of God in our lives. I know that on the spectrum of Christian doctrine, and we've talked about this before, there are two opposite ends of the spectrum where some will believe that the Bible emphasizes that it's all up to you to get saved and to keep your salvation. And uh, on the other end of the spectrum, some will emphasize it's all up to God to get you saved. You have no choice in it. You can't gain it, lose it, do anything. It's all God. And there's a tension in the Bible between man's responsibility and God's sovereignty. I don't believe we should be at either extreme. But yet both are truth. Both are true statements. That God is sovereign and man needs to be responsible. But as much as we are to be responsible for our salvation in terms of receiving, accepting, walking, living in obedience, there is the keeping hand of God involved in it. It is not solely up to us because the promise is that God will keep you strong unto the end. So God is the one who was also actively working in your faith to keep you strong, to keep you from falling. He does his work to preserve us as his children in this journey of faith so that we might finish and finish well. He says here, God will keep you strong to the end so that you will be blameless. Listen, that doesn't mean perfect, but it literally means without accusation. Blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. How is it possible that we're able to stand without accusation before God? Not because of our own merit or worth, but because of what Christ has done for us on the cross. 
And so God sees us wrapped in the righteousness of His Son. None of us can lay claim to any righteousness of our own, but because of what Christ did on the cross, when we put our faith in Him, we say, yes, Jesus, I accept you as my Savior, then the day we die, we stand before the Lord. Or if He returns, if that happens before that. And we're able to stand before Him without fault, without accusation, because of what Christ has done for us on the cross. And so he's reminding us of this. He's reminding the church at Corinth of this. In verse 9, he says, God who has called you into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, is faithful. Amen? He says, I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another, so that there may be no divisions among you, and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. All right, now how is all that possible? How in the world, I mean, it's hard enough just in a family to agree with one another and that there be no divisions. How can you do that in a church with dozens or hundreds or thousands of people? Uh, This obviously takes the work of God and the help of God to unite people who are different, with different backgrounds, different cultures, different life experiences into a place of unity. Please note when he says here, he says, I appeal to you, brothers, again, verse 10, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another. In the King James, it says that you would speak the same thing. The Greek is autolegite. It means basically this, that you will not be saying things that are contradictory in terms of the truth of God's word. That we would all be saying, it's not that we're always going to agree about everything. We're not going to just speak in synchronized language, but he says here that you would agree with one another. His basic point is going to be this. Disagreement causes division. Agreement causes unity. So to the degree that you can agree and get along, do that. Because disagreement causes division. And it is easy for churches to get trapped in a bunch of disagreement and breed disunity for whatever reason. Because somebody wants to be right, it's more important to be right than to be in unity, I guess, to some people. But, you know, please note in Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16 to 19, there's a list of things that God hates. And it says six things that God hates, seven that are detestable to him. And the last on the list is a brother who sows discord among brothers. Listen, I say this with all compassion and love and grace, but I also say this for the benefit of the protection of this flock, and for this applies to any church and any flock. If you are more intent on being divisive because you want to change the church from within, it would be better if you just leave. Because to sow seeds of division and discord is something that God hates. So make sure that if you want to be gently disagreeable that you do it with the right heart and the right spirit because the mean kinds of divisive things that happens in some churches has killed a lot of churches and for the sake of unity for the sake of getting along make sure that you're not just trying to be divisive for divisive sake make sure it might be a legitimate disagreement we can disagree in love and still get along in unity but it would be better for someone to leave a church than to cause division from within. So he says there, agree with one another so there may be no divisions among you. And this is an interesting word. And that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. That phrase there, to be united in mind and thought, the word united in the Greek is the same word 
as is found in Mark 1, verse 9, when it talks about how the disciples were mending their nets. It's a very interesting Greek word. And so use it in the same sense. In the way that the disciples were mending their nets, they were bringing this strength and unity to their net so that it could serve a good purpose by catching fish. And so typically, and back in the day, when you'd fish enough with your nets, they'd become torn and ripped and you get big gaping holes in it. And so in Mark 1, 9, it talks about how the disciples were mending their nets. It is the same word that Paul uses here to be perfectly united in mind and thought. There needs to be a mending and a unity so that our effectiveness as a church, this is for any church, can go forward because of the unity that we have in Christ. Otherwise, we'll be paralyzed with division and disagreement. So mend those nets, come together, be perfectly united in mind and thought. He says in verse 11, My brothers, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. All right, so we have a mole in the church. Chloe the snitch. But it's okay. She's gotten word back to Paul. She's like, there's some quarrels among these people here in our church. And so Paul's, Paul's addressing it. Now he calls her out in the letter. I don't know how they're feeling about it when they're reading the letter. Oh, Chloe. Oh, you're the one. Oh, great. Isn't that nice? That's sweet. She's the one who Paul refers to here, yeah? From Chloe's household of informed me that there are some quarrels among you. He says in verse 12, what I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. And another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. So he says here, there's some personality worship going on here. And he says, by the way, we're nothing. Look further, chapter 3, he kind of repeats it again. He says, you are still worldly, for since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere men? For when one says, I follow Trump, and another, I follow Clinton. Or, oh, wait, I'm sorry. Back to the text. For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere men? And he goes on. Look at the next verse. What, after all, is Apollos, and what is Paul? Only servants, through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. He says, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. Go back to chapter 1. Paul is very careful to say here, Don't make celebrities out of people. Don't make celebrities out of pastors, out of evangelists, out of teachers, out of any of those who have any kind of spiritual influence. He says, because, listen, we're just vessels. We're just instruments in God's hand. And God is the one who gets the glory, and God is the one who does his work. And don't you ever forget that. Because Paul doesn't want the church to become centered on a personality. He wants the church to always be centered on a person, and that person is Jesus. And the problem in a lot of churches is when they become personality-driven instead of the person of Jesus as the center of that church. And Paul says, listen, stop all of this. I follow Paul. I follow Paulus. I follow Cephas. He says, it's got to be Christ. And that's why he goes on back here, chapter 1 and verse 13. He says, is Christ divided? He says, was Paul crucified for you? He's like, stop stop treating me like I'm the Messiah here. I didn't die for you. Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? He says, you know, last time I checked, I don't remember baptizing anybody in the name of the Father and Son and Paul, you know. He baptized, but not in the name of Paul. He says, verse 14, I am thankful that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius, a couple of people there at the church of Corinth. He says, so no one can say that you were baptized in my, in, into my name. And then verse 16, he remembers, oh, wait, yeah, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. But beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else, all right? Some of you have had some of those moments, right? 
You're at the bottom of the steps and you can't remember, am I going up or did I just come down? Paul's like, okay, okay, Crispus, Gaius, uh, that's all. Oh, wait, okay, Stephanus and his household, but that's it. I don't remember if there was anybody else, but that was basically it. And he adds there, he says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. By the way, this is a proof text. This is one of these places where this is a great place to recognize the Bible does not say that water baptism is required for salvation. And some places, some churches teach that it is. And here's the reason why this is a proof text, because Paul says here, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. In other words, if baptism were essential for salvation, he would be called to do that like he would to preach the gospel. But he separates it. He says, okay, now listen, baptism is important. And in essence, we know from Scripture that Christ calls us to be baptized to identify our lives with his finished work, Death, burial, resurrection, coming out, you know, into the water, up out of the water, okay? But he says, but Christ didn't call me to baptize people. He's already baptized a few people. I mean, can you imagine? And John chapter 4, it tells us that Christ didn't baptize anybody. Only his disciples did. That's the wisdom of our Lord. You want to know why? Because if he had baptized a few people, and then his disciples baptized some people, there would have been people walking around going, who baptized you? Matthew. Matthew did. Matthew baptized me. Really? Well, Yeshua baptized me. Oh, yes, Jesus himself, the Messiah. I had the better baptism. Sorry. People would have been doing that. Of course they would have been. People all the time, even as Christians, they get in these cosmic poker games. They do. You get into chapter 12 of the spiritual gifts. Paul's going to address the spiritual gifts because they were going around like, what gift do you have? Well, I have word of wisdom and word of knowledge. I'll see your word of wisdom and I'll raise it. Tongues and interpretation. And it's just it's crazy. It's craziness. It's like a poker game. It's crazy. And that's what they were doing here. They're like, well, who baptized you? Well, you know, you know, I don't know. And he's just going on saying, don't do this. Don't make celebrities out of the people. Nobody died for you except Jesus. And then he goes on, verse 18, he says, for the message of the cross, now this is where he gets into this whole part about the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of heaven. He says, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. All right? So he says, look, to a, to a world that doesn't understand it yet, they think that the cross is ridiculous. You start going around preaching about how Jesus died on the cross for you, shed his blood, paid the price for your sins, you believe in him, your sins can be forgiven, you go to heaven. All right? Until and unless you believe that, you'll listen to that and say, that's ridiculous. That is foolishness. Please note also the tense in that 18th verse when he says, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved... It is the power of God. That is a great phrase to remind us that we are all a work in process. Now, salvation is an instant thing when you believe Christ as your Savior. But I love the tense of his letter here because it just is simply a reminder that, yes, though salvation is a moment in time when you put your faith and trust in Christ, salvation is also, in, in that sense, a journey of conforming more and more to the image of Christ, dying to self, growing your faith, going on to maturity. It never stops. He says in verse 19, for it is written, he's going to quote from Isaiah, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. God is saying, anybody smarter than I am, all right, as much as the world thinks that they're really all that smart, they're not. And he goes on verse 20, where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? 
Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? You have to remember, I mean, Paul's writing this, 56, 57 A.D., We've already gone through Plato, Socrates, and Aristotle. They were 400s and 300s B.C., a few centuries before Paul's writing this. Okay, Plato was the one who first established the first institution of higher learning in Athens. Athens not too far from Corinth. All right, so these people, are, they're, very, they're very well acquainted with philosophy and wisdom and all of this stuff because they're living in the shadow of Plato, Aristotle, and Socrates. But Paul is blowing all this out of the water. He's saying, okay, as smart as man thinks that he or she is, no one, no one is as smart as God. So don't deceive yourself because he goes on, he says, uh, verse 21, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. Okay, as smart as people thought they were. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Meaning the cross. Meaning the foolishness of the cross. That would save the smartest guy in the room, if they would just humble themselves and realize they're not all that smart. Verse 22, Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom. And the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Don't kid ourselves, right? We're not as smart as we think we are. We're not. And the greatest indicator of one's ignorance is to think they don't need God. Isn't it tragic? This isn't applicable, obviously, to everybody. But isn't it tragic that sometimes the people who regard themselves as the smartest have the least regard for God? Because we get so full of ourselves and we think we're all that. And then we don't realize just how ignorant we are because what we really need is a Savior. We really need the Creator of the universe who sent His Son to die on a cross for us. I read a thing one time where Albert Einstein in, in one of his classes asked his students, this was a brave question, but he asked his students, how much of the world's knowledge do you in this class believe that you possess collectively? How much of human knowledge do you believe that you possess collectively? And all the students got together and they came up with a percentage. You know what the number was? They said 5%. They said, we believe that we contain 5% of the world's knowledge in this room. And Albert Einstein thought, well, that was pretty generous. And so he said to them, don't you think that God could be revealed in the 95% that you don't know? And isn't that true? How smart we think that we are. But in reality, God is real and God is true. And God sent his son to die on a cross for us. So no matter how smart you think you are, make room for the reality that God exists in all of that equation. And he says, brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Verse 26, he says, not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. 
Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Amen. We hope today's message from the book of 1 Corinthians has blessed you and drawn you closer to Jesus. Pastor Gary has more to share, but this is where we need to end for today. Feel free to read ahead before you join us next time on Cornerstone Connection. If you'd like to listen to this message again or explore other teachings from Pastor Gary Hamrick, just visit cornerstoneconnection.cc. Again, that's cornerstoneconnection.cc. You can even download our mobile app to stay connected to the truth of God's Word everywhere you go. If you're in the Leesburg area, you're invited to join us for our weekly gatherings at Cornerstone Chapel. Come by on Sunday or Wednesday to spend time in worship, Bible study, and fellowship with your brothers and sisters in Christ. You'll be able to find service times and directions on our website. Again, that's cornerstoneconnection.cc or give us a call. We can be reached at 703-771-1500. And when you call, please let us know how we can be praying for you. That number again is 703-771-1500. Would you pray for us too? Please pray that we keep our eyes always on the truth of who God is and that we move forward only by His power. Thanks for praying, and thanks for tuning in today to Cornerstone Connection. They say you're a wandering soul, that you've got no place to go, but still you know, you're not alone. Real love is calling, listen, truth opens up your eyes. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.